0: As an entrepreneur, optimism is your superpower. Welcome to the Going Global Podcast, brought to you by Globalization Partners. Hire anyone, anywhere, quickly and easily. Use our AI-driven, automated, fully compliant global employment platform, powered by our in-house worldwide HR experts with a 98% customer satisfaction rating. Globalization Partners, succeed faster.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Going Global, the podcast where leaders in high growth companies tell us their own stories of going global and building global remote teams. I'm your host, Diego Mendiburu, and remember that you can find all episodes of this show on Spotify, Google, and Apple podcasts. On today's show, we're interviewing Brian Reckworth. He's the co-founder and former CEO of Viva Real, a leading prop tech business in Brazil. He now invests in the most promising tech companies in Brazil and Latin America as an angel investor. He is dedicated to empowering the next era of entrepreneurs in the region. His new company, Latitude, aims to democratize access to everything an entrepreneur needs to succeed. And he just published his book, Viva the Entrepreneur, where he shares the lessons he learned while building his company. Hello, Brian, and welcome.
0: Hey, thank you. It's great to be on
1: here. It's a pleasure. Brian, please tell us Based on your experience as an entrepreneur and now an investor, can you give us a picture of the evolution of the startup ecosystem in Latin America, you know, mostly also the investing landscape in the region? What different challenges investors faced 15 years ago compared to today? Well, I guess
0: uh, 15 years ago it was a desert, right? There was no capital, there was hardly any entrepreneurs going after tech-related ideas. I mean, there's always been entrepreneurship in Latin America, you know, since the dawn of time, but the ecosystem was very underdeveloped and there was a lack of capital resources. And frankly, the mindset wasn't there either. And so we've seen a dramatic shift over the last decade in particular, accelerated in the last five years, where there's many more entrepreneurs going after exciting ideas and thinking big about what they're doing. And the capital is also followed. There's you know, much more readily available investment and risk capital to fund those early stage entrepreneurs in building their next ideas.
1: What changed? What was like the pivotal point, the thing that impulsed the region and and made all these new things happen?
0: I think there's a series of events. Um, I mean, it helps that, you know, you have a Mercado Libre, you know, approaching, you know, $100 billion market cap. I would say a handful of, you know, if you look at the last couple of years and the probably one of the most monumental shifts was on the onset of, of SoftBank announcing their $5 billion fund for the region. I think that was a dramatic accelerator for the region. That brought on a whole level, new level of additional capital coming in from, you know, globally and interest from investors that hadn't invested in the region. But really we've had like three cycles in Latin America. We've had the kind of the dot-com bust. There was another kind of cycle in the, you know, early 2010s and, you know, a lot of capital that came in and then there was a new vintage of entrepreneurs, which I, I'm part of. So I kind of came in the second vintage, you know, a business like new Bank and Creditas and you know, maybe Corner Shop and a handful of other clip. And there was a bunch of these companies that were started in a kind of a second generation. And now we're seeing the third generation where it's my belief that there'll be a hundred times more value created over the next decade
1: than the last decade. So what kind of companies or industries, you've already mentioned some, but what, what industries have been transformed the most or have flourished the most in Latin America with this entrepreneurship boom? I would
0: say that the, the most marked... I guess, transformation is happening in fintech. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you look at financial institutions all in Latin America, you know, most of the economic power sits in the hands of very few and the banks are very dominant. You know, I'm more familiar with Brazil, but Mexico, it's very similar. Five of the largest banks control, you know, a huge percent of the banking. And so the the currency sits there, the money sits there, the power is in the hands of those. And it's resulted in, in, incredibly low NPS rates for the consumers just aren't happy. And that's what happened when you have monopolies. When you have monopolies, you have crappy service. When you have crappy service, but you have no options, you just suffer. And so Latin Americans have been exposed for this for decades. You know, there's been improvements in regulation in other areas, and there needs to still be a lot more. But that's opened up the floodgates for fintechs to come in and really start picking off pieces of the banking system. And that, uh, you know, that's become, I'd say, the biggest accelerator and the most capital has probably gone into the fintech space. But I would I would say that every single sector of the economy you, you know, in Latin America, I'm an optimist by nature. So you can look at every single sector of the economy and say there's massive inefficiencies there. Yeah, we have a, a shortage of of problems to be solved in Latin America. And when there's problems to be solved, there's entrepreneurs to solve them. And where there's entrepreneurs to solve them, there's capital that will follow those ambitious people. And so I would say every sector of the economy will be transformed. FinTech has probably been the largest and the greatest kind of interest from abroad, which is helping to accelerate. But I would say every other sector of the economy will be you know swiftly on the heels of
1: that. Now there's this paradox because, as you mentioned, there are some big problems in the region. So there is this narrative, you know, about Latin America being a difficult place to do business due to political instability poor rule of law maybe even organized crime so do you hear that from your investor peers and colleagues and what do you answer to them what do you reply them with
0: listen i think that you know the same could be said about india the same could be said about southeast asia it's not like latin america is this place where like you know there's a bunch of unethical people it's it's just the reality of the society and most of the world has a lot you know has challenges there and probably there's more weighted challenges in certain aspects. But none of that will stop the secular shifts of digital transformation. It doesn't matter. You know, you look at decentralized finance, like, you know, that, that's, that's an empowering thing for individuals. And so there's tons of opportunities. And I think that the people that are scared of that are slowly becoming less scared. And I would say the driver for that is, I mean, New Bank's a $25 billion company, So you could say that there's a lot of corruption and political mess in Brazil over the years, but did that really matter? And Mercado Libre is a perfect example. I listened to a a podcast with Mercado uh, Libre's founder, CEO, Marcos Galperin this morning. And, you know, the interviewer is from London. Uh, It's, it's Harry Stebbings uh, from 20 minute VC, one of the most popular, you know, podcasts out there in venture globally. And, you know marcos got Benin, he's been able to thrive in the you know argentina hasn't been the most smooth sailing over the last you know i'd say 20 years yeah. and you know marcos has been around for 22 and he keeps prevailing so i think that when things get tough entrepreneurs turn up and uh, i don't think there's anything that can stop the power of you know an ambitious entrepreneur that is unhappy with the status quo and wants to change things
1: how global can Latin America companies be, you know? How easy is for them to thrive in other markets such as the US, Europe, or Asia? Can you give us examples of some companies that have thrived in those markets and what are their biggest challenges?
0: There's, there's a handful of them. I think that historically, you know, and when I went to China in 2016, I was part of a group of founders through Monashis, one of the, com- you know, the funds that invested in my company, and they took a, a group of fifty, 50 entrepreneurs to, to China, and I think one thing that we saw there was just a mindset. The mindset was like global. The mindset was big, and there's a famous quote from Georgio Paolo Lemon, who's uh, one of the great entrepreneurs of, of Latin America and the world, really. And he, you know, he says it costs the same to dream big and dream small. So why don't we just dream big? And so I think that everything first starts off with the mindset shift, and I think that that's actually kicking into gear right now, where you have, you know, companies, you know, there's a company Moral and uh, from Argentina and like they're, you know, they're, they're, they've set up shop in the Silicon Valley and they're selling to a global market, uh, have raised over a hundred million hundred million dollars. And there's, you know, there's definitely a trend for people to think a little bit bigger. I would say that there, you know, as another example, I'm starting a company right now with a handful of other entrepreneurs, you know, they're second time founders, built their first company, sold it for a lot of money, you know, Colombian. And Martin Shrimp, the the CEO of this company, he often says that he has a chip on his shoulder. One, because he built a company. He actually says he has two chips. One, because he built a company and he sold it too early. You know, it was taken over by NASPERS a a little too early and he should have, it was a payments company. It should have been the next Stripe or Adian. And then the other chip on his shoulder is that it was kind of the PayPal at the time of Latin America and the other chip is that Latin Americans are oftentimes building, oh, let's build the you know PayPal for this. Let's build a, a Stripe for Latin America. Let's build the... End. A, a tropical it's, version of something that already exists. Exactly. And what, what's happening now is I think that we're seeing you know, a willingness for founders to build something that's global and maybe compete on a global mm-hmm. scale. And so there's a company that I'm part of, and we're going to be fractionalizing vacation homes globally. And so you know, you're able to buy an eighth of a property in Los Cabos, if you're a Canadian or American, and, you know, we'll eventually go to, you know, to other parts of the world. And this team is Latin American. It's, you know, a a Mexican, a Mexican-American, a Panamanian woman, uh, Graciela, and Martin Shrimp, who's Colombian and Brit. So I think that the mentality needs to change. And I think that when you see these big companies being built, you know, incredible value being created, you start kind of moving the goalposts and, and dreaming a little bit bigger. And that's, that's the critical in order to, for you to be
1: successful in that you know, kind of global scale. So I guess you already answered this with the answer you just gave us, but how important is it for investors to see that an entrepreneur has a strong international expansion strategy for his startup from day one? You know, that they are aware of how relevant it is to expand globally from the very beginning.
0: I don't think it's that important. Um, mm. I think it can be important, but I think that not all businesses should be built for the world. You know, in fact, I, I spent a lot of time with the Kazakh team. You know, Nico Sakazi and Hernan. and I. You know, I remember having conversation. You know, during dinner one time, and Nico emphasized that he likes businesses that have moats around them and have geographic. You know, if you're building a productivity tool from Latin America, you're competing with a founding team in Romania, which you know it's hard to be the best in the world. At something, But if you've got a, something that has geographic, you know, moats, you know, and, and today that's obviously COVID has accelerated the barrier, but there's certain things that are inherently local, like real estate. It's not that easy for somebody in Romania to work with, you know, real estate agents and brokers locally, you know, be it language, be it culture, be it, you know, just the, the hyper local nature of real estate. And so when you've got, you know, or, or let's take another example that's even more mundane, accounting. The accounting system is very complex in Latin America. So it's unlikely that you're going to be a, you know, a company from abroad that's going to try to do that. That being said, the opportunity to be global today is so much easier. And the name of this podcast is Going Global, I believe. And it's very timely because, you know, you can have an engineering team located somewhere else. You know, I just got off the phone with my team at Latitude and there was somebody in Miami. There was somebody in Rio, somebody in Sao Paulo, somebody in Ecuador, and somebody in Uruguay, and a Russian guy in Sao Paulo on the call. So this is the definition of being global today, and it's not necessarily you don't have to sell to a global audience. You don't have to have customers around the world. That is possible today, but you know, you can be global in distribution and team. And that's something that I think is an incredible opportunity.
1: Now that you mentioned Latitude, how are you helping entrepreneurs with their global expansion plans? But as you mentioned, maybe it's not necessarily only the expansion plan, but hiring people in other countries in order to make the business more efficient or having more specialized talent. How are you helping them do that?
0: Yeah. I think that, you know, we're, we're not a talent, you know, we're not here. to kind of, you know, we go in very early and we build a community of entrepreneurs. So, you know, we, we, it's a very lonely journey, Diego, and the community aspect is super important. So I guess one way that we're helping is, you know, there may be an entrepreneur in the South of Brazil and they have a great business or they've got something that they're building and they need to drop in in Mexico. So given that we have an amazing community kind of embedded in, in latitude, you know, it's easier, there's more networks being opened up. What I look at what we're doing, there's kind of three elements to it. And we've kind of unbundled the capital from the advice and the network, which, you know, a lot of investors talk about advice and network, but most of them provide just capital. And so we're focusing on building a community, allowing you to tap in, you know, cross border to micro networks around, you know, different topics. And, you know, and, and that connection is something that's a massive facilitator. I mean, we've even paired up entrepreneurs that are founding something and that need a co-founder. And, you know, there's been co-founders that have come together across border and are working, you know, in the cloud today and uh, and building something, you know, for an audience in a different location than where they both live. And so they used to say the sky's the limit, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, I think Elon Musk has proven us that the sky actually isn't the limit.
1: Let's talk about your book, uh, Be the Entrepreneur. Why did you write it? Why now? And how useful could it be not only for entrepreneurs, for but- for other people trying to understand how to do business in Latin America?
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, first of all, the reason why I wrote it is very clear. It's the book that I wish I had when I started, right? It's a very lonely journey. There wasn't a ton of resources when I started out. And I I wanted to kind of, you know, demystify aspects of of entrepreneurship. I broke the book into three parts. Uh, One of them is the psychological aspects of entrepreneurship, which is, is very difficult. It's full of I often say that your best day and your worst day are sometimes the same day, and that's the roller coaster of entrepreneurship. So I talk about that a little bit, the co-founder dynamic and you know the, the nuts and bolts of just the kind of psychology that is, is you know, important because you're, you're in it for the long haul. Uh, the second part of the book talks a little bit more about the operations and the scale and the team and hiring and board. And then the third component to the book is really revolving around the venture capital world and the venture capital game. And understanding how to be efficient and effective when you're, you know, you're out, you know, fundraising and, and, and interacting with investors. So I think that it's useful for anyone curious about entrepreneurship, uh, anybody who, you know, you may be an angel investor, you may be an executive at a startup, you know, So, but if you're in the tech space, and you're interested in Latin America, and I would say that it's not only relevant for Latin America, I've gotten calls from people you know, my friend, Chris Schroeder, who's a prominent, you know, operator, entrepreneur and investor has done a ton of work in the Middle East. He's like, man, this book is perfect for someone in the Middle East building a company or someone in Southeast Asia where he's quite active. And so I think that there's been 16 countries, people from 16 countries that have bought and and read the book and, and sent me a note. And so I intended to write it more for Latin America because that's the area where I'm focused. But I think that, you know, if you if you take out the, the Latin American title, the title. It's still relevant if you're an entrepreneur anywhere in the world.
1: So I I know that this is an important part of the things you wrote for the book, but what is the most important thing you've learned as an entrepreneur that they never teach you in business school?
0: You know, I think that the, I mentioned that kind of the psychology, you know, I think that like probably the people skills that are so necessary to get a team working and to serve as a leader is something that, like, you know, I think that it, maybe it's touched on at business school, but, like, you know, the whole idea of, like, vulnerability, building trust, and developing frameworks for just building a, an incredible team dynamic, I think it's the personal skill side is, is under-emphasized, and there's more hard skills teaching, and more kind of frameworks and market analysis. And I think that business school should focus on that, on the, you know, the kind of the soft skill stuff, because... You know, I used to say with my head of HR, Renata Lorenz, you know, she she did her MBA at Stanford. We used to say, hashtag people are complicated. (laughs) And the reality is like, it's just true. And if you can be an amazing advocate for people working together and figuring out just the psychology of people and understanding how people think and being a good communicator, a good listener, you'll untap and unleash a lot of value in your company because you'll all be rowing in the same direction and you'll be unified around building this great business that you're trying to build. And I think that that's an underinvested area where the technical skills, the engineering skills, those are all super important. And if you don't have those, it's, you know, it's hard, but you know, just landing the plane here, I would say it's, it's really important to, you know, to just develop those kind of personal skills and, you know, vulnerability in your team and being a good leader.
1: Now that you mentioned this, we're about to finish the interview, but I don't want to don't ask you about cultural differences uh, with so many companies being now global, as you said, not only because they have presence in several regions, but because now it's so easy to work with people from several countries at the same time, as you mentioned in, in your previous call, uh, you have conversations with people basically everywhere. So how are startups dealing with that? Are startups more able to change and adapt to all the cultural differences that are coming with remote work than other big companies? Yeah, I
0: think that you know there's a great book called The Culture Map and it's breaking through the invisible boundaries of global business. I would pick up that book if you're an entrepreneur and you're building business in multiple countries. I mean, the reality is that I learned this the hard way through, you know, I'm an American. I have a pretty direct style. In Colombia when I lived there, there's a, an inverted communication style that exists in latin america not everywhere but in most places where the you ask a question and you may in latin america get an answer that is a little bit long-winded and you know what's your favorite color well when i was a kid uh, i you know i grew up and i love the 49ers and red is my favorite color and this explanation and but now you know i i i got i've got this girlfriend she's got the most beautiful green eyes and green is my favorite color and when you're speaking to an American or a German or, you know, they think that you're beating around the bush and actually it can be perceived as hiding something. I suffered from this because I thought that people were, you know, avoiding something when really they were just constructing an argument to provide. And it's very rational. When you have a, a judgment about something, you want to give your rational description of why that is. But in business, it's it's inefficient in the communication style because you you need to just be moving fast. And so you need quick answers and then you can give clarifying responses afterwards. So that's actually called the upright triangle. Um, you know, if you ask the question and you give an immediate answer and then you explain it to Mm. the degree you need to afterwards, that's, you know, Mm. certain culture is, is uses that as a, as a style of communication. And in Latin America, it's, it's kind of inverted. So that was a lesson for me. I've, I've even adapted it to the point where like, I probably use the, you know, the other inverted communication style. And then I end up being, you know, less direct because I've had to adapt to, I'd say that that's one thing. And listen, there's uh, you know, I'll give you one other example in the U S when you're giving feedback to somebody, there's something that's called the shit sandwich. Sorry for my language. The shit sandwich is basically when you've got something that you want to say to somebody, you, you say something nice about the work they've done. You give them the feedback. And then you say something nice when you're leaving. And that actually is in some cultures, it just doesn't work. Ironically, in Brazil, people don't get it and they don't like it and they, they, it's uncomfortable. And so Brazil is a less direct country usually. But in terms of feedback, that feedback strategy doesn't work as well. And so these are all things you know that they're very complex. And so if you want to get
1: good at culture communication,
0: I would read the culture map.
1: So final question, how do you see the future for the entrepreneurship ecosystem in Latin America? What's coming up for us?
0: I'm very uh, optimistic and uh, I think that we're at the early innings if I'm going to use a soccer analogy this is the minuto dos del juego <laughs> so we have we have a lot of you know things that are going to happen over the next decade I think that all sectors of the economy will be transformed and I'm very bullish on the human potential that exists globally but in the region of course I know that it's difficult to be an optimist in the current landscape and the backdrop of societal shifts that are happening with, you know, COVID, obviously the looming question of like how that's going to adapt. I do think that Latin America is being in a challenging moment. And, you know, as, as, as a lot of the world. And so my heart goes out to anyone that's kind of suffering there. So I hate to be like the eternal optimist while some people are suffering, but I think that as an entrepreneur, optimism is your superpower. And so, you know, it's the only way that I know how, because, I've gone through a lot and a lot of things didn't work and, you know, optimism got me through the difficult moments. And so I think that we're, you know, we're at the early stages of what could be very exciting over the next decade. If I were to say the U.S., you know, has has done an amazing job in, you know, ushering in technology, China as well, India last decade, India had a huge breakthrough in terms of a lot of value being created. I think that this next decade, Latin America is, has an incredible opportunity to kind of Put itself on the world stage and i hope to be a, a promoter
1: and, a, and an advocate for that and that's it this is the end of our show i hope you enjoyed today's episode remember that you can find all past episodes on spotify google and apple podcasts if you are planning to hire a new global team member remember that globalization partners makes it easy to onboard international talent in a matter of days go to globalization-partners.com to get started
0: If you are planning to hire a new global team member, Globalization Partners makes it easy to onboard international talent in a matter of minutes. Go to globalization-partners.com to get started.